right. How is everybody? Awesome. Awesome. Hey, I just want to just give like a shameless promotion here real quick. The second song that we sang today, My Heart is Alive, it's part of our new worship album. I am so excited for the world to get to hear the songs that these men and our team have been writing. I want to encourage you to be here Wednesday night, seven o'clock right here in this room. It's going to feel like a night of worship, but we're going to be doing a live recording and a live video of all of these new songs we want to share with the world. So I hope you'll come out. Hey, we're in a series called uh, Whatever, and uh, maybe over the last couple of weeks, you've gotten tired of the word whatever. My wife reminds me, uh, it is her favorite word in the English dictionary, okay? I did not know the word whatever until I got married, and then Tracy said whatever. And, uh, and, and so I've just kind of learned, and for some of you, you've even said, listen, my children are coming home and saying, dad, whatever, okay? And so we're really sorry for that. Thanks for letting us uh, brainwash your kids a little bit here at South but we're in this series called Whatever, talking about all the different things that we face in our life. And we're really kind of looking through the book of Philippians, kind of like that's kind of like our, our, our periscope where we're looking into and talking about how we can have joy in the midst of all the whatevers we're going to face. Because let's just face it, man, whatevers are going to happen in our life. And sometimes you just need a really good Thursday afternoon, whatever, okay? I know I do in my life. So if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. But I want to begin by asking you a question. How many of you guys love new experiences? You love new experiences. Like when, when you have an opportunity to experience something new, you get excited, okay? I do. Like I love, I love trying new restaurants. It's the thrill of walking in and them handing you a menu and you have no idea what you're about to experience. And it could either be really good or it could be really bad. I love the experience of going and driving to new places, um, I'm a runner, so I like the experience of running in new places. That's one of the things that's kind of like on my bucket list. Everywhere I go in my life, I want to run there. I remember one time I was in England, and I got to run in front of Kensington Palace. And I'm like waving at all the royalty. I'm like, holla, okay? I mean, I just love new experiences. The truth is, all of us in life really do love new experiences. And we have certain experiences in our lives that we hold very, very dear this is how I know this. In two weeks, or some of you have already done this, you're going to pull a lot of things out of your attic that have large amounts of dust. And you're going to put them up in your house and you're going to try to recreate the same experience that you had 12 months ago, right? We call it Christmas. And you have traditions, like when people come to your house, you want the same experience of how you had Christmas meal every year because this is how we do it, right? We, believe it or not, are experienced junkies. We are. Doesn't mean you're a thrill seeker, but a lot of the experiences we have in life, we really do hold dear within our lives. So how many of you have ever heard this phrase before? There are some things in life you just can't know until you what? Experience them. Experience them. So if you're here today and you're a grandparent, uh, I want to say this. You have probably said this to your kids four or five times. Listen, you did not know what parenting was like until you became a parent, right? And some of you, you're like, okay, I'm about to graduate from college, and it's like, what's the real world like? And, and there's just certain things in life you just can't know until you experience them. But you know what else I've learned about life? We place great value on our experiences in life. We do. 
We place great value. We take pictures of them. We talk about them. We share the experience with others. We tell others about the experience that we had. But here's the crazy thing that we do sometimes in life. We often place the wrong value on the wrong experiences in life. And sometimes we don't place the right value on the right experiences. Let me give you a very simple illustration. Uh, a couple months ago, I was getting my, my oil changed at this car dealership. And I got in my car and, and was leaving and was pulling away. And I probably got two blocks from the dealership. And the dealership's calling me on my cell phone. I'm like, oh, I probably left my keys or my wallet or something. And they call me and say, hey, Mr. Smith, this is so-and-so dealership. Hey, we want to talk to you about your experience today at our dealership. I'm like, I got my oil changed. Like, and he starts asking me questions like, on a scale of one to five, how was the customer service when they spoke to you about the type of oil that they would be putting in your car? I don't care. (laughs) Because the truth is we all at times put the wrong value on the wrong experience. And I understand. I love customer service. I totally understand it. And I'm very grateful if you are the owner of that dealership and you called me and, and all that other stuff. But here's the deal. In my life, sometimes I put the wrong value on the wrong experience. Because even though I'm an experienced junkie, in my life sometimes I struggle to put the right value on the right experience. And let me say this, that's important in our life and here's why. Because many of us, a lot of us in this room, we've had an experience with God. And when you think about your experience with God or you think about your own personal experience with Jesus, You've either had a really good experience and you've put the right value to it, or you've had a really bad experience and you've put the wrong value to it, right? I mean, for some of us, we have stories. We've come in this room, it's like, Sean, I went to this church and they did this and all this happened and then da, 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 da. And, and, and you can almost stand up and give testimony of what you would call a bad church or a bad God experience. And some of you in this room, that's why you've never fully surrendered your life to God, Because you're still hoping that everything that you saw about the experience with God is not true. The truth is, we value experiences in our life. Why are they so important to us? You know why? Because they form our beliefs. The experiences we have in life form our beliefs. You say, I don't know that that's true. Let me explain it this way. Do you realize that at the same season of your life when you were probably six to 10 years of age, you were learning about the God of the universe at the same time that you were learning the truth about Santa Claus? Okay, that's, that's like a weird experience. Because you're trying to figure out there's this God who loves me who says he wants to have a relationship with me. And then there's this guy who says he brings these presents to my house and suddenly... He's not who I thought he was. And the truth is, those experiences form our beliefs. Our beliefs about God are formed through experiences. Some of you grew up with an incredible father. And so when we sing, you're a good, good father, you think about who your father was. But many of you in this room, when we sing, you're a good, good father, there's a well of pain and emptiness that comes out of you. Because you say, I never knew that father. And if God's anything like my earthly father, that's a pretty bad experience for me. See, our experiences are very important. They're very important in life, especially our experience with God and our experience with Jesus. 
So I had a lady one time, she said, well, Sean, it doesn't matter about what I believe about God. As long as I believe, as long as I believe it and I am passionate about what I believe about God, it can change my life and it can impact me in a positive way. And I go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. So what you're saying is you take your experience in life and you let your experience define who God is versus letting God define your experience. If we do that in life, many of us will struggle with a new term I want to introduce to you today called MTD. MTD, not MTV. Some of you thought, oh my gosh, okay, MTD. You go, what in the world is MTD? Well, this is the short version of what it is, but when our belief about God may be wrong and we have a skewed view of who God is, what we try to do is we try to make God like we want him to be, which is common. But this thought of MTD is real. So I'm going to give you the 50 cent word for it today. You ready? Hold on. Hold on real quick. Here we go. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Some of you go, wow, I didn't know you were that smart. No, I'm not a psychologist, but in the year 2005, there was a Christian sociologist by the name of Christian Smith, and he began to study the student culture all over America and even around the world, and here's what he found out, that people's experiences in life, and specifically teenagers' experiences in life, were forming a belief system about their experience with God, and through that, they were beginning to believe and act as if This was true. What does this mean? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Be good, feel good, live our life. We want to be good, right? We want to do things of great purpose in our life. We want to be the people that what? Change the world, all right? So we want to be good. And then we want God as our therapist. So we want to feel good. God, I want you to make me feel good because I'm out here doing good, God, like I'm changing the world one red cup at a time, okay? I'm out here being good. So I'm, I'm sorry, that was a jab. I'm out here feeling good. Just had to get it off my chest. Feeling good. God, I want you as my therapist. And then I'm just gonna live my life. And what you were really saying is this. I wanna do good things. I wanna feel good about it. And I wanna know that God is watching me and waiting in the background. And Christian Smith said this, when it came to moralistic therapeutic deism, we basically want this. We want a God who awards us for our good works, takes care of us like a therapist, and is just kind of waiting for us. You see how our experiences can affect our belief, even our belief in God. So you know what happens when we form all those beliefs? We begin to practice those beliefs, and those beliefs become religion to us. So you go, wow, I've never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, you can have a religious experience about a lot of things in your life, okay? I've been to some really good Tex-Mex restaurants, and I want you to know it felt like a religious experience. As the cheese was coming out, I wanted to bow down. I was like, thank you, okay? But the truth is, our experiences that form our beliefs end up becoming the thing that we attempt to understand God through. You say, okay, Sean, enough of the religious garb. I get it. Here's what I want to say to you today. 
religion's not good enough. See, our bad experiences will leave us believing that just religion by itself will help us cope with all of just the bad experiences in life, and we will never experience what God wanted us to experience. So Paul, chapter 3. We've been uh, talking through the book of Philippians. Chapter 3 is where we're at today. And in, in, this, in this chapter, Paul is basically giving them, I call this Paul's 30 for 30 moment, okay? Now, I don't know if you watch ESPN or not. I love those 30 for 30 stories. Like, I can be up at 2 a.m. watching a 30 for 30 story about Muhammad Ali that I've seen seven times. And it's very addictive. But they started creating these stories, and basically, here was the thought. We want to show you a perspective of this person's life or this instance that you didn't even know existed. And so they roll out the film. Well, for Paul... Paul spent in chapter one saying, listen, all of these things that happened to me, God has a purpose in them, and for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then last week we talked about how through humility, through humility, we are able to deal with the whatevers of our life because it's in humility that we find our strength through Christ. And so in chapter three, it's almost like Paul stops and he takes a pause and he turns on the film and says, I want you to watch my 30 for 30. So let's watch it. Look at verse 1. This is what Paul said. He said, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you, and it is a safeguard for you. Look what he says in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs. You say, what? Was he in a park? (laughs) Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Paul says this, there are these people known as the Judaizers. Here's who they were. They were the super religious crowd, and here's what they believed. They believed that to truly be a follower of God and a follower of Jesus, you couldn't just believe in Jesus, and you couldn't just believe as a Jew. You had to do all these external things. It was kind of like Jesus plus something else. And you know what? The same is true in our culture today. Paul dealt with the same group of people that we deal with today. But Paul uses three terms to identify these people. He first of all calls them dogs. (laughs) So I don't know if you've walked up to anyone lately and said, hey, you look like a pooch. But Paul walks up and says, you dogs. Why did he call them dogs? Because back in those days, the Jews and the Judaizers treated Gentiles like they were dogs. And Paul flips the script And he says, hey, you dogs, you evildoers. Why? Because they believed it was through their religious perfection that they were going to reach God. They believed they were good doers. And Paul calls them evildoers. And then he says, those mutilators of the flesh. No, that's not a Walking Dead episode, okay? What he's talking about is this. They believed that through circumcision, that was the way that you proved that you were really with God. And Paul, he just jumps right in. He says, listen, you guys are a bunch of dogs. You're like a bad dog running around a runner's foot trying to yap him at the heel, okay? He said, you're like dogs. You're evildoers. And he says, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh, the people that tell you that you've got to do things externally to be right with God. So Paul's laying it out, right? And he basically says this. He says, hey, I want to make it very clear You need to watch out for this. And then look what he says in verse three. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. What is he saying? He's saying we've got our hearts circumcised. 
Forget about all the external. I've been changed from the inside out. He says, for we are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit. In other words, we don't have to run into the temple to worship God anymore. Jesus can live in us and who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, I find this to be amazing because basically what Paul's saying is Christ has changed our hearts and we are not trusting ourselves. Because Ephesians 2.89 is very clear. For it is by grace we are saved through faith, and it is not of ourselves. Paul said, I've gotten there. I've gotten there. I want to give you testimony. I have gotten there. But Paul understood something that we know is true about our own religious tendencies. Here's what Paul would say. Our old self always wants to depend on ourself. That's why if you're here today and you say, Sean, I am super religious about God and I am fine with the way my life is, I want to say then you're going to wrestle most of your life because your old self will always want to depend on yourself. And Paul said, listen, we're not like those people. We've got something different than just being religious. In fact, he even tells us what he attempted to do to have an experience with God. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in flesh, I have more. Look what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's him. That's his testimony. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee. He says, As for zeal, in other words, as for passion, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, I love it. He says, I was perfect. So, how many of you guys have ever met someone who has seemingly done it all? Right? They always talk about where they've been, what they've done, who they were with, what it felt like. And you look at them and you're almost a little jealous of them, Right? Because you go like, oh, she always goes on that cool vacation, or he's always at that great place. How did he run into that person? We spend our lives looking for experiences, and Paul said this, this is my experience. I had did all the things right in my life. I had checked all the boxes. I had done all the dots. I had connected all the lines, and I was faultless. I was faultless. And here's what Paul calls out in every one of us. Most of us, we try to find our worth through our experiences. Paul said, I've done that. I've tried to do that. In fact, we try to find our worth through our experiences, and if our experiences don't match up, we think we're not worth anything. I'm sure Paul would have felt that way. Because most of us are a little bit existential in our life. We believe that something can't be true unless we what? Experience it. Paul said, I tried all these things and they just didn't work. That experience wasn't good enough for me. That thrill, the the junkiness of my experience didn't match up. So you know what Paul does? He tells us some steps that we need to take to put the right value on the right experience in our life so that our life can be transformed. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever was a gain, I considered loss for the... Any, any accounting people here today? Anyone work in accounting? Raise your hand. It's okay. You can admit it. Okay, you get geeked about numbers, right? Like you see a set of numbers and you go... <gasps> I see a set of numbers and go, oh, okay. I am not great with numbers, okay? I prayed my way through college algebra. I was like, Jesus, come back now because the final exam's worth 50%, okay? Please, 
And so Paul uses these accounting terms and he starts talking about his profit and loss sheet. He said, what I used to think was profitable to me, I now consider loss. Whatever I thought was a gain to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. And basically what Paul was doing is he said, I want you to look at my P&L sheet. Look at his P&L sheet. This is what he would say. He'd say, these are all the things that I thought were profitable to me. Listen, most of us in America, most of us in the world, this is the experience we want. We go, if all these things could happen, then not only is God good, but God must be really real. (laughs) And Paul said, no, 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 whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. And here's what he was really saying. He's saying we need to examine the exchange rate. Did you know you have an exchange rate for your life? There are things that you think are profitable. You may not talk about them all the time, but you live them every day. I mean, if you think exercise is profitable, you're going to exercise. If, if you think saving is profitable, you're going to save. But Paul said, you need to examine the exchange rate of your life. What is it that you think is profitable and what is it that you think is a loss? Because most people would say, truly, truly following God with every fiber of your life somehow in this generation seems like a loss. Paul said, no, you need to examine the exchange rate. You need to look at it because we all have one. And he's basically saying, don't size your life up by what you think is profitable, but you got to answer this question, what is really important to you in your life? Paul was examining his P&L sheet. He was looking at it, and he was sizing it up. And I want you to hear what he said after he sized it up. Look at verse 8. He says, what is more? In other words, in light of what I just told you, even greater than what I just said, I consider everything a loss uh, loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So here's what he did. He fixed his P&L sheet, and this is what he said. I've taken everything that I saw as profitable and I moved it over to loss so that I could gain one thing and that one thing is to know Jesus. And then he goes even further. He says, I've calculated the value. I've calculated the real value of all this. Remember, this is his 30 for 30. And he says, as I've calculated it up, what I've realized is there's something greater than all the experiences that I think I have to have in this life. And he says it this way. He said, I've traded it all for knowing Christ. What does that word knowing mean? It's the word gnosko. And it means that you know something through personal experience, not through head knowledge. So if I was to talk to you today about climbing Mount Everest, and you could read all the Wikipedia you wanted about Mount Everest, but if you come up here and you say to me, bro, when you get to this part and you have to make this turn, I'm going to look at you and go, listen, I don't want your Wikipedia. But if you walk up to me and you say, hey, guess what? I climbed that thing through personal experience. I'm going to look at you and I'm going to go, wow. 
Paul said, listen, I calculated the real value of my life and I was able to move everything that was a profit to a loss and suddenly what I put in the gain somehow became bigger because knowing Jesus, experimenting Jesus, knowing Jesus experientially through personal engagement was greater. And then he even said, and I took everything else that was in the loss category and I threw it in the garbage. Now, what's funny is we don't understand the power of what Paul said. But when Paul said the word, I consider it garbage, the word that he used in the Greek is skabula, and it basically was like what we would say a cuss word is. And the word literally means refuse, trash, or dung. Paul was explicit in calculating the real value. He said, I've sized it up, I've looked at it, and knowing Jesus is greater than anything else, and everything else is just a bunch of dung. You say, he must have been crazy. Wow. Now, here's what he's saying. Don't don't spend your life trying to possess something that doesn't have value. Paul said, I found one thing. He, He would say this, I found one thing worth trading everything. That's what he would say. Is there the possibility that there's one thing worth trading everything? So at this point, we don't understand this because, you know, you think, okay, well, Sean, I'm not really an accounting person, so I don't understand P&L. So I want to give you a real-life illustration of how we learned this early on, but we don't even realize we've learned it. This is how I learned it at about eight years old. I learned it through hanging out with this guy. Monopoly, right? How many of you guys love Monopoly? Yeah, you're about to play it, right? Because the holidays are coming. And, you know, it's the one game that you know you can, like, literally take someone's knees out in and feel good about it. You know, you're fired, okay? You can do that in Monopoly. But here's the thing. If I were to ask you this question, what is the most valuable property on the Monopoly board? What would you say? (laughs) Park, place, and boardwalk. Everybody says that. I mean, they lay out the board, and I'm already scheming. How can I get around and own that, that, and that? And somehow we think in my mind, if I can get those properties, I will win the whole game. Now, here's the crazy thing. Don't know who did this. Some great mathematician did this. You can go check this out on the web. He went and actually discovered that the most desired property on the Monopoly board is not the most profitable property to own. You go, (gasps) This is why I've lost. (laughs) Here's what it is. New York Avenue, Tennessee Avenue, and St. James. They have mathematically calculated that if you own these three properties, you have a greater chance of winning Monopoly. Why? Because you own the right thing, and it has the right value. Paul said, I've calculated the real value of all this, and I've learned that Jesus is the right thing that has the right value. And everything else is just garbage. And he even tells us how he found this. Look at verse nine. Verse nine, he says, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now, why is this so big that Paul said this? Back in these days, there were a lot of people that believed in what was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically taught people this, because they were dealing with Greek people, right? 
And they have great food, but they can be a little odd, okay? He's dealing with Greek people. And, and he, he's basically saying, hey, listen, I have found something that changed me, and it didn't come from me trying to do it. It came by me placing my faith in Christ. The Gnostics believe this, that you worshiped God, and you got to know God through having a higher level of intellect. And by having a higher level of intellect and thinking more and more about it and all this other stuff, that you would have a religious experience with God. Paul said that's not true. He said, here's how it happened for me. I'm not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God, not me, on the basis of faith. So literally, he was talking right back into the culture of the day. He said, this is how it happened to me. It happened when I realized that my rightness with God comes through a relationship and not through a set of rituals. Remember how experienced he was? Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, faultless, zeal, passion, great portfolio, but empty. He said, I found something better. And here's what he basically said, I'm trading my rightness for his righteousness. You know, that's what religion does. It wears us out. It brings us to the boiling point of saying, God, how can I ever please you? And that's the wrong question. Because until you understand that only Jesus fulfilled what stood between us and God, you'll never know what Paul understood. He says, I'm trading my rightness for his righteousness. And then he says something that I want you to hear. Look at verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. So, you know, in this chapter, we've heard this word know and knowing. We've talked a lot about experiences, and Paul said, I've sized up my life in knowing Jesus, this personal, experiential, gnosko moment with Christ is greater for me. And then he uses this word in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. And in the Greek, it's the same word, gnosko. But in the Hebrew, it's the word yada. And so you go, oh, I've heard that before. I, I heard that on a Seinfeld episode once. They were sitting around talking about being intimate, and they said, you know, yada, yada, yada. Some of you go, am I in a church? Yeah, you're here in church. Welcome to Southcrest. (laughs) But you know what Paul meant when he said that word, that word yada? I want to experience Christ to the point of intimacy. I want to let you know a little secret about me. We don't talk about this a whole lot because, you know, it's husband and wife stuff, but... When I asked Tracy to marry me, I didn't kiss her until we were engaged. You say, wow. Just, I didn't feel like I had the right to kiss her until I put the ring on the finger. If you like it, put a ring on it. (laughs) And I did. But we were engaged, and I'll never forget, we were sitting at her house. She was still living with her parents. And it was one of those nights around 9, 10 o'clock, and we had been talking about our relationship and everything and about how excited we were to be married. And, and I looked over and I said, I want to kiss you. And she said, I'd like that. 
And I reached over and I got right up in her face. And y'all know the moment, right? You're going right in. I mean, you're just like, and you can actually almost feel the person's face, you know, touching your face. And you can almost smell that person's breath. And she had such sweet breath. And I got close to her, and I remember the moment my lips touched her lips. And it was like, there's no going back. There's that moment of, you don't stop and go, oh, I changed my mind. I mean, I was going in for the kill. I'm like, I'm going to kiss you well. And you are going to love it. And man, I did. Man, when you get that close that you kiss the one you love and it's real, there ain't nothing like it. That's what Paul said in this word. I want to know Christ. Let me tell you another way I've learned this in my life. When my son was younger, we used to play all these videotapes for him because, you know, back then they had VHSs. They didn't have DVDs yet. And... Uh, Lots of rewinding. And I remember putting the DVD in, and we had these little um, song CDs and song deals that we played, song VHS tapes. And, and, and one of the favorites that we loved, maybe he didn't love it, but we loved it, was Salty's Praise Party. Y'all remember Salty? Some of you remember Salty, okay? Yeah, we used, to, we used to put the VHS in, and we would play Salty over and over again, and he would sing these songs about Jesus. And, you know, Salty was a big book, and he'd walk around and stuff. And, and there was this moment I don't know who put this in the, 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 the VHS, but it was the greatest moment of my life as a dad. But there's this moment where Salty said, I want you to look at the person beside of you and run up to them and grab them and say, I'm madly in love with you. And I remember as a dad, my son would come running across the floor and he'd run up in my arms and he'd say, Dad, I'm madly in love with you. That's what it means to know Christ. Paul looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm madly in love with you. I know I'm in chains. I know I'm in a prison. I know I'm going to die. I know Nero's going to... I get it all. I see my circumstances, but Jesus, you are bigger than my circumstances, and I am so stinking in love with you that I want nothing more than to know you, Jesus. You say, Sean, I don't know about that experience. Because somehow my experience is about coming to church about 10 times a year and knowing about four verses in the Bible and singing a couple songs. And I always like it when you sing the familiar stuff because I feel like I know the words. And, you know, you get it all together. And Paul said, listen, that is nothing but a bunch of garbage compared to knowing Jesus. I want to know Christ. And look what he says. He says, I want to pursue the right experience. He, how did he say he wanted to know him? He said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. In other words, I want to be transformed in my relationship to Jesus. And then he says, and I want to know the participation of the fellowship of suffering with him. And so we don't get that because we don't love suffering in our world. It's not like everyone gets up every day and says, oh, I hope I suffer today. But I want to say this to you today. How many of you are veterans? Raise your hand. 
How many of you have served in a foxhole with somebody on the battlefield? Let me tell you what. Those people that you suffered with, you're like this. That's what Paul said. I'm here going through whatever in my life, and me and Jesus, I am just reflecting on the fact that I am getting to know him better through my suffering. But what do people do? I'm mad at God because he's allowing me to suffer. Paul said, no, 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 you got it backwards. This is how we know him through our suffering. This is it. I want to know the power of transformation and the participation of suffering with Jesus. Man. You know what the hardest part of that is? Here's the hardest part. Until you experience Jesus like that, until you know Jesus like that, you will be just like I had earlier in my life trying to bring about every other experience to code your bad experiences in life. So Jesus, he had a word for this. Matthew 7, and then we're gonna close. Matthew 7, verse 21 He says these words to his followers. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look what he says. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, I just want to say this. These guys had a much better resume than me spiritually. They had been out healing people. They had been out casting. I mean, I can't even think that on Tuesday afternoon I would have had the power to leave here and walk up and say, I'm going to, boom, in the name of Jesus, come out. Okay, I didn't do that. I mean, I had a hard time having a prayer time on Tuesday morning. These guys are out casting out demons. And Jesus looks at him and says this, I see all your works, but I don't know you. See, here's what, I've, here's what I've come to in my life. You know what's more important than discovering what's true in life? You want to know what's more important than discovering what's true in life? Discovering what's real through personal experience. Would you pray with me today? Some of you are like, dude, you are full on. Yep, I am. Here's why I'm full on. When I was 18 years old, I'd been a believer for about nine or 10 months. I was asked to go serve at a discipleship camp for a group of high schoolers, and I sat in a dorm room of this college there in Oklahoma, and on a Saturday night, I was reading a devotional book and I read this verse and it changed my life forever. And here's what the Lord said to me. Sean, the rest of your life is gonna be about knowing me and making me know. That's it. Say, well, I want all the bells and whistles. I want the pony tricks. I want the fire. I want the sparklers. I want to say this to you today. If Jesus isn't enough to light you up, nothing ever will.
Paul said, I've tried it all. I've experienced it all and it left me empty. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them trash that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So, I want to know Christ. Let me tell you today, there are some of you here, you're looking for the experience that will change your life. Here it is, Jesus. Only Jesus. 